From Television City in Hollywood. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. The following rustic exhibition requires discretionary viewer participation. Greetings from Allentown is taped in front of a live studio audience. everyone, and welcome to episode 47 of Greetings from Allentown. I am your host, Peter Winson. And today, we got one that I have had in the queue for a very long time, almost all the way back to the beginnings of this show. It was originally going to be one of the first 10 or 15 episodes, but I held it back, held it back, and I figure, now that we're in a new year, 2018, what better time than to look at WWF Superstars from April 16th, 1994, which on its face just seems like, well, that's entirely random, WWF post-WrestleMania 10. What, what makes this special? I'll get into all that in a second. But first, please allow me my usual plugs at the top of the show. You can email the show at greetingsfromallentown at gmail.com, Twitter at GF Allentown Pod, where I am quite active with things, and Facebook.com slash greetings from Allentown. And you are probably listening to this show on the Pro Wrestling Only feed in association with the Place to Be Nation, where uh, you can go to do your Amazon shopping. Let's make sure I get this right this week at place to be nation.com slash Amazon. For those of you who got Amazon gift cards over the holiday season, you just redeem your gift cards, and then you go through that link to Amazon, and a portion of the proceeds is kicked back to help with site costs. Now, over the past week, the Sheedy Awards, which I had mentioned on an earlier show, the PWO PBT Place to Be Nation (laughs) feed was up for Best Network. And while it may not have prevailed in the Sheedies, in the Peedies, it will always be number one. Yeah, that's right. I I worked all week on that joke. Uh, You know, I'm always on the losing side of elections anyway. So it was probably bad luck to have me on the network and to get nominated in that way. I remember when I was on the Lucha Undead podcast about six months ago, Timothy or Adrian, I forget who asked the question at the end. I'm like, tell tell us something about you that might never come up on your own show or whatever. So I brought up how much I loved Mr. Belvedere, which was like an insane notion because I knew Mr. Belvedere was going to come up. I mean, I played the closing theme from Belvedere at the top of the show in case you didn't recognize it right off the bat. But it's that... I've never voted for a winning presidential candidate. I have voted in, let's see, five presidential elections now, and I have not voted for anybody who's won those elections. I never voted for George W. Bush. I never voted for Barack Obama, and I certainly did not vote for Donald Trump either. I also didn't vote for Hillary. So you can kind of piece together who I would have voted for (laughs) 
<laughs> just by process of elimination there. So en- enough political stuff. Congratulations to all those who won in the Sheedy Awards. I'm, I'm sure that uh, Dave Meltzer needs our needs our plaudits because, uh, oh, wait, he's, he's not listening right now because Wrestle Kingdom is coming up and uh, the... Uh, I believe the young bucks just bought him some French fries. Oh wait, he wouldn't eat French fries with those that that that, that physique. No, absolutely not. All right, enough about enough about Meltzer. I, I don't want this to turn into a uh, Bruce Pritchard podcast where I'm just obsessing over him or whatever. So this is WWF Superstars episode number three ninety four in your scorebook. So yeah, they're into the ninth year of. Superstars episodes, and they were kind of in a hybrid here where, yeah, Raw is the main show, but still, things were happening on Superstars that were of importance, and there were angles run on the show, and in fact, there were even title changes down the road. A couple of weeks later, there would be an intercontinental title change on Superstars. So the WWF around this time is kind of similar to WCW in terms of the calendar year 1994. When I did the episode of Worldwide from May of 1994, I talked about the duality of WCW from that year. The time before Hogan gets there and the time after Hogan gets there and how everything gradually changes as the year goes along. Here in the WWF, you have a similar thing going on, but for completely different reasons. It's not that one guy shows up and changes the equation or anything like that. The beginning of 94 in WWF, WrestleMania 10, is a pretty fun card, albeit a two-match show, but certainly very rewatchable. The Raws from this period are quite fun, even though... McMahon and Savage can be a little overbearing on commentary with the current events references to prove that hey we're up to date here and we're taping we're not taping the show this is live even if it was taped so they would insert all these references which you think I would like because it's 1994 and it's right in my wheelhouse but there's so many of them and there would be so many obscure little things that to keep up with them is very difficult. So here here we are on Superstars, which is actually Vince McMahon and Jerry the King Lawler on commentary. So Lawler back, of course, at WrestleMania 10 after the legal issues that he had had the previous year. So WWF had a fun first part of the year, and then in the middle part of the year, you have Vince McMahon, who is staring down the barrel of a gun that is a federal indictment where his thought is that he is going to go to jail and he's convinced that that's going to happen and that they've nailed him and of course it didn't turn out that way but that trial takes place in the middle of 1994 and I think that the distraction caused by that caused the product to suffer not necessarily right away but I think a lot of 1995 in the struggles then is owed to the fact that they didn't have their eye on the ball months before because I think it's sort of a lagging thing. It's not going to show up right away. It's like the opposite of how I talk about booking being a lagging indicator of ratings. So you have good booking in a promotion, but it's going to take a while for the ratings to reflect that. And conversely, if you have bad booking, it takes a while for the ratings to go down and reflect how 
terrible things are on TV. Think WCW 1999, because in the middle of the year, they're still doing okay, and then by the end of the year, it's really starting to bottom out. You have the change to Russo, and the rest is history there. You also had a number of guys and teams disappearing from WWF in the middle of the year, just kind of out of nowhere. Like, you have the Steiners and the Quebecers. Mr. Perfect drops off the face of the earth right as he's heading for a big program with Lex Luger. Earthquake disappears off the scene, but luckily they brought back the typhoon. Good old Uncle Fred comes back into the picture to save the day there, I guess. So the end of 94, as you get into the fall, isn't quite as fun. There's still a few fun things. I really enjoy Survivor Series 1994. I watched it actually for the first time ever earlier this year. And I might be the biggest fan of the Lawler and Midgets versus Doink in the Midgets match out of anybody <laughs> in the world. I, I Maybe I was just in a good mood that day. I, I don't know. But I really enjoyed the hell out of that one. So why this show? Why, why would I have my eye on the April 16th, 1994 episode of Superstars for such a long time? Well, the biggest reason is the location is where it was taped. And the WWF did other shows in this location. And in fact, one really famous, Raw. But for this, this is at the Lowell Memorial Auditorium when they taped this, which is only a couple of days after WrestleMania 10. This is taped on March 22nd, 1994. And the Lowell Memorial Auditorium is pretty close to my house to the point where it would be about a 25 minute walk if I decided to walk there and it wouldn't be through the greatest neighborhood in Lowell that I would have to go through so I would probably take a cab just for my own safety but it would not take me very long to get there and it is a fantastic wrestling venue as Ring of Honor has run pay-per-views out of there WWE has run NXT out of there on a couple of occasions, the most famous of which being the Finn Balor losing the NXT title to Samoa Joe. And it's just a great event. And the wrestling podcast about nothing did an episode a few weeks ago that I really enjoyed in kind of the list format and talking about their favorite venues in wrestling and knowing that Mike Crockett and Brian Malonis are two New England-based guys. I'm sitting there with my hands in a prayer position. Please say Low Memorial Auditorium. Please say Low Memorial Auditorium. And Brian Malonis said that that was at number one. So I was very pleased to hear that. It's really more of the experience of being there. The balcony overhangs. It's such a unique... It shows up so unique on television. The balcony is so close to the ring if you're... At the front, I actually like to sit at the back of the balcony. That's where I sat for the Ring of Honor pay-per-view in 2016. I understand that they're doing a 205 Live show at the Lowell Memorial Auditorium later this month. I'm kind of undecided as to whether I want to attend that event because when I went on there for tickets, it said, tickets start at $18, and I said, well, that's probably okay. Okay, and that's a reasonable price. So I go on there and I go through the whole ticket thing. And with fees, the total comes to $35 for one ticket. So the fees were almost exactly the same 
as so maybe I should just go to the box office on that. I, I don't I don't think I'm gonna be going to that. There's a Boston Bruins Montreal Canadiens game in Montreal that night, and I think I'll just sit home and watch that on the telly instead. Plus, there's one more thing about LOL that I'm getting a little bit fed up with, and there's something that happened to me last weekend, where LOL has this reputation, at least in my mind, of having the worst pedestrians in the United States. Like, they will not cross with lights, they will not look both ways before crossing, they will cross ultra slow if they see a car coming, they will slow down. It is literally one of the worst places to drive when there are people walking around because it's 50-50 that you're going to run into somebody, like, no matter what you do. And last weekend, I'm driving through, and I had to wait because somebody in front of me was making a right turn at a green light, and I see these pedestrians coming over. Now, I have a green light to go straight, and they're standing there at the curb, and I start to go, and all of a sudden, they stop, So I go again, and immediately they bolt out in front of my car. So I had to slam on the brakes, and I come within like two feet of hitting one of them. And I honk the horn, and the woman has the audacity to flip me off. I flipped her off too afterwards, in a proportional response. And yet she decides to start running after my car. So I just drove away because my car is faster than that trashy 42-year-old Dumbass, I don't want to get too far down this road. So why don't I bring myself back to what is on the show? Stuff is still happening on Superstars in 1994. And at some point, I want to get to the show with the last great angle that was on Superstars, which is in 1996. That is also in the queue as well. So on this show, we have Lex Luger fresh off kind of blowing it at WrestleMania 10, but that, that's that's really not what I want to get into with his character because that, that ground is well-trod well at this point. And then a couple of guys who will well-trod any ground that they're on, men on a mission, Bam Bam Bigelow and Crush are in action, and Earthquake in his singles babyface run of 1994, which always amuses me for whatever reason. Gotta love John Tenta in the role of the smiling good guy. <laughs> He's in action as well. And our main bout, and this is where it fits the criteria of stuff happening, is the Native American Tatanka taking on Quang. And you say, well, why the hell does that matter? Just just trust me. The angle that comes out of this match is is worth it for this whole show, and that is why I am doing this show. So with that in mind... Let's just jump right in. Back in this point in 1994, R. Kelly had the number one song in America with Bump and Grind. And I can't be alone on this when it comes to the Major League Baseball All-Star Ballot. Every time I would get one of those... I would pop when I would see Roberto Kelly's name listed there under outfielders. He was with the Cincinnati Reds by this point because he would be listed as R. Kelly. So I would vote for him on literally every single all-star ballot because of how it made me laugh. I can't be alone on that. I can't be the only person who felt that way. 
So anyway, as I said, Vince McMahon, Jerry the King Lawler are the hosts of Superstars at this time. And they start right out talking about the King being dropped on the previous episode of Monday Night Raw. They were doing that trope that you see only with heel kings. Maybe they did it with Duggan one time as a gag, but generally kings tend to be heels anyway. Where Lawler is being carried out on a throne with six unnamed guys who are wearing wrestling tights for whatever reason. This one is actually kind of interesting because the lead guy in the front is D'Lo Brown, and on the then known as AC Connor, and then on the other side of him is Dwayne Gill, later to be Gilbert. Thought that was kind of interesting there. What they did was when they went to set Lawler down by the ring for the King's Court segment, they went down a little too quickly on one corner, and Lawler took a hell of a bump there (laughs) onto the ring apron. And uh, for comedy's sake, Vince decided to make hay about it right off the top here. I'm Vince McMahon, along with the World Wrestling Federation's answer to Humpty Dumpty. Yes, indeed. Unfortunately, however, they have put the King Jerry Lawler back together again. I guess that's your weak attempt at humor. Everybody thinks that's funny. Here it was, Monday Night Raw. The King, the undisputed King of the World Wrestling Federation, being carried out to the King's Court by those inept idiots in my sedan chair, and they dropped me. They dropped the King. Can you imagine that? I'm not going to stand for it. I think you were behind this or somebody. I think Lawler's work in 94 cemented him as perhaps the greatest comedy worker of all time. I mentioned that Survivor Series match with the midgets and how he was outraged at the the Burger King hat being put on his head. I I, I do think Lawler is better at that than pretty much anybody else. And this time he's hosting the King's Court, which is the Raw talk show. We get the Heartbreak Hotel talk show segment coming up later with Owen Hart as the guest that had just debuted. And they were lightly setting up the Roddy Piper feud in April. You wouldn't start getting the Piper remote promos until May, really, by saying that the King's Court was the best talk show. And that's an easy way to draw Piper into a feud, is to say that your talk show is better than his. So, ergo... Piper cuts those promos on behalf of the children, and we have our bizarre main event for King of the Ring 1994. Only bizarre in that they're spending two months promoting the new generation of WWF superstars after WrestleMania 10, and then their main event at the King of the Ring is two guys who are over 40. It's 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 so it's so wrestling on its face, but it it is a match that is probably kind of a dream match. It's just that. It did not exactly take place at the right time. Now, speaking of matches that seem like they should have taken place in a different time, we have the All-American Lex Luger here, and he's taking on George South. Wow. This is something out of Techwood Studios in 1987, but is happening in Lowell, Massachusetts in 1994. Wrestling, it's just its just so amazing. You, you never cease to amaze me, professional wrestling. It's so great. Don't have the Stars and Stripes music for Lex Luger. So he's got the tights for the Stars and Stripes, but it is not, you know, we're not total Yankee Doodle dandy at this time. But there is a USA chant early on in support 
of Luger. I suppose if there were some Smark fans there who were pro-George South, they would have started a counter-chant of, the South will rise again, or something to that effect. And Luger, (laughs) as I mentioned, he got screwed over, for lack of a better term, at WrestleMania 10 by Mr. Perfect. And running through that, if you look at it simply from a kayfabe perspective, Perfect had a perfectly good reason to feel the way he did after being attacked by Luger a year earlier. It's also the fact that, you know, he did let things go for a while and Luger was a little bit out of control and he did put his hands on an official ordinarily. It would not be calling for the DQ, so perfect kind of little inconsistent there but you know that's that's how you start up the feud here so vince says something rather interesting right off the bat about this pending feud between luger and perfect lex luger will meet up with mr perfect on the worldwide wrestlemania revenge tour and it will be luger seeking revenge justifiably against mr perfect well i guess technically that's not incorrect they would face each other at some point, Lex Luger and Kurt Henning, but it wasn't until the November 3rd, 1997 edition of WCW Monday Nitro. It did not happen in the WWF in 1994, nor did any Mr. Perfect match happen, as his back was apparently still injured. He also may have had a broken foot. I've seen various accounts on that. So if you have a situation where you can either sit at home and collect a big insurance settlement or you can work for roughly the same amount of money, I don't know why you would work for the money when you can just get it for free or whatever. And it was on the April 25th episode of Monday Night Raw where they announced that Perfect had bailed on the series of matches with Lex Luger. So that leaves Lex in a really bad spot now and kind of goes into how unlucky he was in his WWF run as he's now a guy without a feud and that is not a good spot to be for somebody who is as high profile as the all-American Lex Luger is supposed to be and also just in a really ill-suited gimmick which you know I've addressed in the past that Having Lex Luger try to be this gregarious, patriotic superhero did not suit him in the least. I don't understand why Lex Luger had to be patriotic. And I'm thinking, is this another example of right-wing Vince McMahon coming to the fore? Or is that just something that I'm thinking of from the David Bixenspan Deadspin article talking about Vince's connection to... Donald Trump. It might it might be psychosomatic in that way where um, it's just on the mind right now and I'm applying it to things that happened in the past. The crowd is into Lex Luger. They're, you know, it's not like he's walking out there and getting no reaction whatsoever. It's just that he's so ill-suited for it. The slapping hands with the fans, Lex Luger, anytime he would do that, it would, it would be in the most robotic Fashion, almost exactly like RoboCop. I, I, if RoboCop, you know, slapped hands with the fans on the way to the ring or anything like that, starts with a hip toss, a lariat, and a power slam, and he does the weird Lex Luger elbow that I 
maybe other guys have done this, but I recall Luger doing this on numerous occasions where he would jump way up for the elbow and he would hit it, but he would land flat on his back at the same time. It, it was really just kind of an odd way he would deliver the move to George South. And then I'm, I get really excited because I think, oh, he's just going to hit him with the metal plate in his arm and that's going to be that. Nope. He puts him away with the human torture rack backbreaker, or as it was called for a very brief time in his WWF run, the rebel rack, which I don't know if that was an idea to, if he were to join the million dollar corporation, he would switch over to confederate gear and be a rebel in that way. I'm trying to think of Lex Luger as Dick Slater, the rebel, that... Like, was there some sort of contest to give Lex Luger the most ill-fitting gimmick that you possibly could? Uh, th- that seems to be the only reason why you would have him do that. That backbreaker move is really a cool-looking finisher, and he should have been using that from the very beginning in the WWF. Even with Hercules years before, when he used that as a finisher, I think that it was underutilized by him because he didn't get to apply it really to anybody of note when he was a babyface. And Luger applying that hold to Hogan on that Nitro in August 1997 is one of the greatest moments in the history of WCW Monday Nitro where Luger, he fought off the whole NWO. He's got Luger up and he's... Luger has Hogan up in the rack and Hogan when he submits you have Randy Anderson the referee who grabs his head in shock that Hogan gave up and calls for the bell it's one one of the greatest moments of wrestling in the entire decade now after the match they they do a little gimmick that I think they would do from time to time that actually made a lot of sense given Jerry Lawler's interests. Get your mind out of the gutter. I'm talking about his interest in art, in drawing. They would have this telestrator that they called the Magistrator or something, something like that. And Lawler takes this opportunity to say he's not just some down-to-earth American boy or anything like that, that Lex has some private tastes that are out of touch with the common man. Yeah, right. Made in the USA. Let me show you what he does. After every victory, he toasts it with a nice glass of Don Perignon champagne, which, of course, is made in France, right? And then he heads home in his big, luxurious Mercedes Benz, which, of course, is made where? In Germany. You're exactly right. When he gets home, he watches a replay of WrestleMania 10 on his big Sony 19-inch television screen. And where is that Sony made? In Japan. When does he know when it's time to go to bed? When he looks down at that nice Rolex watch that's made in Switzerland. He's a big phony. He's not made in the USA. Vince then goes on to rebut all of these points and erases all the drawings that Lawler had made. And they are pretty good drawings. He did a good job putting the watch on the wrist. Even though it wasn't Luger's wrist, it was somebody who was reaching over the guardrail from the (laughs) front row there. He put the TV in Luger's right hand and the necklace around him with the Mercedes thing on it. It's very well done. And as Vince rebuts all of it, he erases all of it as he goes through. 19-inch television is so incredibly laughable. I mean, 
I had a 21-inch television in my bedroom when I was a kid. It was a Christmas present that made my sisters crazy that I got a 21-inch TV for my bedroom and, like, they had nothing. So for Luger to be this out-of-touch guy watching WrestleMania on a 19-inch TV, I, I, I got no problem with that. Now, as for the Mercedes thing, Mercedes actually these days are made in the United States in Alabama. It was announced that they were building the factory, Mercedes was, in September of 1993. So let's say maybe the Lex Express and all that may have had an impact in bringing the United States a Mercedes factory in the South. It's unlikely, but I'm just throwing it out there for consumption. It's entirely possible that Lex Luger convinced Mercedes Daimler, whatever, to move some operations into Alabama. It, it you know, I, stranger things have happened. Now, as for Vince's rebuttal, the best part by far is in response to the accusation that Lex drinks Dom Perignon after all of his victories. And the taste of champagne never touches Lex Luger's lips. He drinks milk. You know, we can see the results of training, but nutrition is also very important. Speaking of nutrition, that thing, look at that. That's, that's class. Excuse me. Here's to you, pal. Oh, so Vince is actually telling the truth there, as we have actually seen Lex Luger drink milk on WWF television. So for him to stand up for Luger in that way is actually kind of neat. Reason number 57. I will call your boss and make him garnish your wages and cancel your health insurance. Pretty sure the IRS is not authorized to be canceling people's health insurance on them, but IRS, we'll get to him a little bit later on here, as our next bout is the Native American Tatanka facing off against Quang with Harvey Whippleman by his side there. They had faced off on Superstars some three weeks earlier on the March 26th edition to a double countout, which was marred by interference from, you guessed it, IRS, who was all on Tatanka's case during this time period for a headdress that had been given to Tatanka that IRS claimed he had not paid the gift tax on, which, believe me, I'm going to get to the whole tax implications of the headdress and all that. I'm, I'm going to explain it straight up like this is 1,000% kayfabe. For some reason, right off the bat, Vince name drops Sandy Grossman. And it is my responsibility here to explain who Sandy Grossman is in the absence of a pop-up video environment. He was a sports producer of the time period, a rather famous one for CBS, who at this time in 94, along with Pat Summerall, John Madden, had jumped from CBS to Fox when the NFC games in the National Football League had moved from CBS to Fox, so a lot of the people went with it, and he's credited with a lot of innovations in covering a football 
during the 1980s and in the early 90s. And obviously, Fox would innovate the little scoreboard in the top corner of the screen or bottom corner of the screen that is commonplace on all sports telecasts these days. And it's crazy to think that that, that didn't exist before 1994. So Vince also mentions Kerwin Silfies, who anybody who's a wrestling fan of this time period knows that he was one of the behind the scenes WWF directors on primetime and all that. Tatanka's headdress is is quite giant. It's quite elaborate. There are a lot of feathers in it. And you're wondering, okay, can you actually buy a headdress like that? And yes, you you can. There the the site that I saw had a vintage authentic Sioux and Cheyenne tribe headdress that they were selling for 5,500 euros, which comes out to $6,600 American money. So keep that in mind as we go along here. Quang controls early with his martial arts and a sidekick, and Tatanka fights back with a chop and an axe handle, so we're just all in on the stereotypes right up front. Tatanka goes up to the top rope and does the Ricky Steamboat chop where he just kind of comes down with his arm on the top of the guy's head, but it only gets a two count. Quang then cheats a little to regain his edge there and locks on a boring nerve halt of death here. IRS, it's almost as if the... <laughs> that the boring nerve hold or a boring rest hold was his siren song. So he wanders out to ringside now just to kind of check things out. Quang still in control as he puts on a second nerve hold, and IRS now openly applauding at ringside because taking taking the crowd out of the match is an Irwin specialty of the time. They mentioned the gift tax on. The, the, and the, how that's IRS's problem with the headdress and the subject of this whole feud. I'll get to that momentarily. Tatanka fires up, but he only does it the second he sees IRS at ringside kind of looking askance at the headdress. But the sunset flip attempt, Quang uh, keeps his balance and nails Tatanka right in the face there. So Lawler uh, at this point says that IRS just doing an itemized appraisal here, which it's one item. I mean, he can count each feather through there. Vince counters by claiming that it only has intrinsic value, that it is a priceless heirloom. Oh, really? Really? Well, actually, okay, it, it, that, that really doesn't matter in terms of the gift tax. Like, you can sell a headdress just because it is priceless to him does not mean that it is priceless from a tax perspective i'm not a tax attorney and my advice should not be taken as gospel here which i think is probably a disclaimer that i should say anyway but i i'm pretty sure on all of that another sidekick again gets a two count for quang it almost seems like that they edited pieces together from this match and because it seems like it's cutting back to certain points because we see Tatanka's comeback get cut off like on four separate occasions. It's it's really strange. We get the nerve hold yet again, and Tatanka fires up again, seeing IRS screwing with his headdress in the corner. So at this point now, Quang 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't think of Quang as a great Muda type, but Tatanka charges at him trying to get IRS in the opposite corner, and Quang sp sp sprays him with the green mist, which is intended to merely blind and not anything else. It's not going to paralyze him or anything, but it's really to harm his eyesight. So Quang takes the DQ loss here, and IRS hits the ring and starts putting the boots to the Native American Tatanka and then ties him in the ropes, which always a bad sign when the baby face gets tied in the ropes and you have something of value out there, whether it be a snake, a headdress, what have you. So his eyes are burning. Vince calls it green slime, which it's it's a mist. It's not slime, but okay. So his vision is obstructed. Which I don't I don't know what that would have had to do with that. It's the more important thing is that he's tied in the ropes, and apparently Tatanka lacks all ability to get out of being tied up in the ropes. Apparently, this has just never happened to him before. IRS decides to play comedian here, so he puts on the headdress and does the hand to mouth thing the war cry mock the war whoop the that 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 whole thing like the old atlanta braves logo that you would see back in the old days that is obviously pretty racially insensitive and all that so he puts it on mocks him and then he decides to just start ripping it up and as he rips the feathers off, he takes the feathers and stuffs it into Tatanka's mouth because he can't get out of the ropes. This guy who can slam somebody who's over 300 pounds cannot extricate himself from ring ropes. And Hebner is the referee here. Earl Hebner, he does absolutely nothing during this entire process as we go along. We're not even halfway through, but Hebner is barely... He doesn't even try to get Tatanka out of the ropes. So he's just stuck there. So now we have... You're wondering, where where are Tatanka's friends in all this? Where is Lex Luger? Well, Lex just wrestled. He's probably in the shower. Let's let's assume that from a kayfabe perspective. Or wh where are any of Tatanka's other friends here to help him out? Well, here, here comes the cavalry. It is Chief J Strongbow, a man who was the most popular wrestler of the year per Pro Wrestling Illustrated, for the year 1973. So, 21 years later, he's waddling out to save the Native American Tatanka and to, as listeners long time of the pro wrestling only feed would know, that Parv, the legend of the Titans of Wrestling crew and where the big boys play, hates Chief J Strongbow with every fiber of his being, from all the appearances Strongbow made on the Titans of Wrestling footage, but also in listening to Parv over time, who has not podcasted for a while now, that when he was a kid, IRS was apparently one of, if not his favorite wrestler, and he would carry a briefcase to school similar to that of IRS bringing it to the ring. So this is... The ultimate battle here of Chief J Strongbow and IRS. And Strongbow gets in the ring 
and IRS seeing, you know, that what is this guy going to do? He pushes him, and Strongbow chops back, and it... <laughs> I, I had to rewind this five times because I could not stop laughing at this. When Strongbow, when he was in his prime, would do a sort of war dance around the ring and it would get the crowd fired up strongbow's popularity in the northeast can't be denied no matter how you know difficult he might have been to watch or whatever but here at the age of 65 him trying to do the war dance looked more like the pez watley shucking and jiving that we saw a few weeks ago on nwa worldwide like he can barely move out there so he starts gathering the remains of the feathers that are on the ground. And IRS, not, not much damage has been done to him by this chop from a 65-year-old Italian guy. So IRS hits him from behind. And Chief J is now on his fat ass. And Shyster is now grabbing the feathers. And for whatever reason, he decides to start stuffing them in Strongbow's pants. In the, in the front of his pants. Now... For me to say Strongbow has a fat ass here, I should, in the, in, in for fairness' sake, I should po also point out that he did have an ample front ass as well, where he had kind of you know a symmetrical thing. He's very much shaped like a pear. So Shyster is sticking feathers in there. It would have been funny if IRS had just picked up one of the feathers and started tickling Tatanka instead of antagonizing him, but instead. You know, we have, again, the referee is not doing anything to untie Tonto from the ropes. And IRS is now shoving the feathers into Tonto's face as he's still tied up there. And IRS shouts into the camera exactly how he feels about this whole situation. Listen. All right, so let's break this down here in terms of Indian tax law, gift tax. Did Tatanka owe anything to the IRS or to IRS for a gift tax on a headdress there? Well, Native Americans do pay income taxes that are earned outside of an Indian reservation or whatever. They are subject to federal income taxes unless there is a specific treaty exempting certain types of income from it. I don't, I don't want to go down that road. There's like six or seven different exemptions that I saw, none of which would apply in this case. So really, this can be treated as sort of a straight-up tax manner matter here. So 1993-94 are the two years that I'm going to go on here because, who knows, it's probably in the 1994 tax year, but we have the same tax law with regard to gift tax exemption, which is a $10,000 exemption from tax on a gift. So what that means is your grandma can write you a $10,000 check for Christmas and you are not going to be taxed on that because that is the limit there for that tax year. So what this means is that headdress would not be subject to taxation under gift tax laws unless it was worth more than $10,000. Now, we've already established that 
I had looked up how much a similar type headdress would cost in the year 2017 and that it came out to about $6,600 American and that is market value retail there. So it is highly unlikely even though Tatanka's one had more feathers in it it might have been a little bit more elaborate it is highly unlikely that that thing is worth more than $10,000. So really it from a true kayfabe perspective he is not entitled to have to pay any tax on that so what is irs he is the heel here obviously but what is he the heel for is he the bad guy for just simply being the tax man regular people have to work for the irs i mean i don't know how many employees they have these days but these are people who love their family are nice to animals and all that so it's not just being the tax man that makes you a bad person or is it simply being crooked here which yes that is probably the case since he's chasing a guy around for taxes that is not necessarily owed and in fact the abuse of power by the irs would become a kind of issue when the Republicans would win Congress in the 1994 off-year elections and they started to scale back some of the powers of the IRS. Is this a example of overreaching government authority? Is this right-wing Vince, again, making an appearance? I, I, don't, I don't know. There's also the whole thing about IRS being in cahoots with Quang, which is kind of funny to think about, like IRS getting together and say, "All right, now if he if he tries to come near me, spray the green mist in his face." So IRS, he's leaving after he says his piece that I played there, and Tatanka finally gets out of the ropes here as Strongbow is left laying. You have the agents, Tony Gurria, Tony Gurria's hair all in the ring trying to help him and Tatanka looks to the skies and yells no which seemed like a little bit of a delay in the emotion there he's uh, looking after Strongbow and it seems a little similarly contrived to the Bob Backlund why of 1982 but with that in mind, saying why during 1994 was kind of the in thing to do. Why? 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 <laughs> the other thing to remember is this, of course, is in Lowell, Massachusetts, which is a half hour away from where Nancy Kerrigan resided in Stoneham, Mass. So a lot of people around here were getting a little sick of Nancy at that point in 1994. So maybe yelling why like that. Not exactly the best thing to uh, get garner sympathy with the crowd because when you're yelling that, the mind immediately goes to Nancy Kerrigan. Although on the other hand, maybe Tatanka saw that his wrestling career was rapidly winding down here and he was trying out for the Native American gig in the Village People and wanted to be able to yell why in the YMCA and was kind of auditioning for that. Who knows? I mean, it, Tatanka was really never the same after this point yes the you have the heel turn later in 1994 which seems rather abrupt but when you think about how 
Jake Roberts had turned heel three years before. He's tied in the ropes. He has his snake killed by earthquake in front of him, squashed to death, literally. And same thing here. Tatanka tied in the ropes, has his sacred headdress torn apart, turns heel in the summertime, just like Jake Roberts did. It's it's going to psychologically damage a man when they go through something like this. And he also found out who his friends are here. I made an excuse for Luger. Yeah, Luger was in the shower, but where was literally any other babyface from that locker room to come out and help him? They couldn't see what was going on there. Like, where, where are you, Razor Ramon? Where is anybody else to help Tatanka? He certainly found out who his friends were, and the answer was nobody. It was basically a 65-year-old Chief J. Strongbow who was completely useless in this regard here. And they go, they go to commercial, and they come back, and they just kind of replay the exact same thing we just saw. But the Vince McMahon narration of this is some classic Vinnie Mac. However, as Jay Strongbow picked up the remnants of the sacred headdress, Erwin R. Scheister then came from behind and attacked the tribal elder over and over and over again. Pummeling away and helpless in the ropes, Native American Tataka until there was only one thing left to do. Insult to injury. Jerry Lawler, your final reaction to what we just saw again. Well, you know, Vince McMahon, this may have been one of the most blatant examples of outrageous governmental conduct that I've ever witnessed. But as I said before, there are a lot of good IRS agents out there, and we shouldn't judge all of them by the actions of one Irwin R. Scheister on that day in law. And in this angle, like I said, Tatanka was never really the same after this point with the why and all that. It's, it's not particularly helpful to him. The only way this angle might be helpful for anything is for the aforementioned Parv to, Parv to bring him back into the fold of wrestling podcasting. I think the best introduction you could have to get him to watch wrestling again is is to say, hey, remember that time IRS beat the hell out of Chief J. Strongbow on an episode of Superstars? Why don't you give that a look there? You know, send him a gift file that's 10 seconds of IRS uh, whacking Strongbow over and over again. You know, any little thing I think could help. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Hey, pro wrestling announcer Kevin Kelly here. I want to make sure you are all subscribed to all the great feeds here at Place to Be Nation. It's really easy to do. Just head to iTunes or your preferred podcatcher app today and search and subscribe to the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, which, of course, includes the full archives of The Kevin Kelly Show, the Place to Be Nation pod feed, and the Pro Wrestling Only feed. Subscribe, listen, and then rate us and leave feedback today. And be sure to give Justin your true thoughts. I mean, don't hold back. After all, he is kind of a jerk. Just listen to Scott. After these messages, we'll be right back. 
PlayStation Nation's JT Rosero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlayStation.com, and we offer those to you on three great feeds. On the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, we bring you the Mothership, the original Place to Be podcast, as well as main event to Lucha Afterground and our monthly pay-per-view reaction shows, as well as the Our Vantage Point podcast and Jeff Learns Wrestling. In addition to these full-length shows, we also deliver quick-hit pod blasts on topics old and new. Over on the Pro Wrestling Only feed, we dive deep inside the wrestling business with a stacked army of experts leading the way. The feed features potpourri shows such as This Week in Wrestling, Greetings from Allentown, Psychology is Dead, Puro Puri, Stacy and Elliot's Bogus Journey, and the Military Industrial Suplex. We also have shows that focus intently on certain topics like Letters from Center Stage, Space City, and NWA Classics on Demand Adventure, Through the Years, Strong Style History, Strong Style Story, and Mount Olympus. Plus, the feed has the full archives of legendary shows like Titans of Wrestling, Where the Big Boys Play, Letters from Kayfabe, and much more. And on our popular Place to Be Nation Pop podcast feed, we offer such great shows as the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, Rank and File, PTBN Dadcast, Go Home in a Box, NBA Team, and Lucha Undead, as well as a vertible podcast heaven for comics fans with the hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversation, Geek and Sassy, and Imaginary Stories Podcasts. You can find all of these current shows plus archives of our past podcasts, including the Kevin Kelly Show, as well by subscribing to all of our feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All of these shows plus others available on PlacementNation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in-depth stretch projects and more. Be sure to support our site by using PlacementNation.com backslash Amazon when shopping online and download our free PTB Vintage Vault Refresh eBooks via the links on our site. We also want to thank our friends at Boneheads Wing Bar in West Warwick, Rhode Island and Fall River, Massachusetts, TheHistoryOfWrestling.com, and Scott Keats' Blog of Doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlacementNation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. Just a quick shout out to the Our Vantage Point podcast as they will be doing a 25th anniversary Raw special coming up and I contributed a little bit to that, sending in a Raw recollection, which... I suppose that counts as me talking about a WWF or WWE Raw on this show, which I have never reviewed, and it's now officially a thing where I'm trying to avoid doing Raw and Nitro for as long as I can. I'm Actually, I'm planning on doing one or the other fairly soon, probably after I hit the one-year mark, just to show that somebody can do a podcast on wrestling shows without even doing Raw or Nitro. Also, the Place to Be podcast, I am tentatively scheduled, at least my name is on a spreadsheet, to appear on one of the upcoming shows, so do stay tuned for that. Subscribe to the Place to Be Wrestling feed so you don't miss a single episode of the ever-living gold standard, or however it is that it is put. And I am sure that right now, with the GWWE voting closing on December 31st. There are going to be podcasts about that, debating, lists, and all that that entails. I did not cast a ballot. I feel a little bit bad about it, but here's here's the straight poop 
on it from my perspective is I felt like I wasn't going to be able to cast an honest ballot by while doing this show because one of the dirty secrets about Greetings from Allentown over the past year is somehow I think I've ended up watching less wrestling than I did before and maybe I'm accounting for it wrong because when I was at home last Thursday I watched a ton in you know researching the time period around this episode of Superstars so it, it tends to be in these little bursts and less spread out than it was before. I also feel like I would have been completely biased against everybody from 2003 to 2012 because I couldn't judge them on their promos or anything like that. I would have been a complete 70s, 80s, 90s ballot with a few guys from recent years sprinkled in. And I'm sure that others had cast ballots that reflect that as well. It's just that I did not feel comfortable trying to rate Charlie Haas along with uh, Charlie Haas, along with all these other guys. So that's that, but there's going to be a lot of good podcasts, I am sure, about that. So after you have Tatanka, IRS, and Chief J. Strongbow there, the crowd might be a little down, so you need a palate cleanser. And who better than Men on a Mission, two guys who certainly know something about the palate, and they are wearing the purple stripes, of course, at this time. And they are facing off against Joey Stallings and the Black Phantom, who is making his second appearance on Greetings from Allentown. You see him all across 1994 WWF. And under the mask, that is actually David Heath, a.k.a. Gangrel, who would become much famous later on. So the crowd is a little down and out, which Vince actually points out. But Vince, and this is very peculiar thing that he does here tells us of a benefit show coming up in wilton connecticut on april 30th and i say funny because when you say a wwf benefit show and i made light about this in an earlier podcast they would generally send pretty sorry lineups that would feature main events of the young stallions versus the bolsheviks as stuff like that but this show in connecticut to benefit some kind of local organization was actually not a bad card for WWF around this time if since they're not doing multiple house shows they drew 650 to this show and there was a show at the Boston Garden also that day so the main crew was there you had Bob Backlund over PJ Walker the future just incredible interesting match to me Duke Drozzi defeated Adam Baum so it's the it's regular waste over nuclear waste. Bastion Booger defeated Sparky Plug. The Head Shrinkers, who are the tag team champions by this point, would win it before April 30th, defeated the Quebecers. Jeff Jarrett defeated Doink the Clown. This is, of course, Doink Ray Apollo the Clown, or Doink the Second. Earthquake fought Yokozuna to a double countout in one of Earthquake's final appearances so not a completely terrible show although they may have considered actually having a benefit show for something else because it was the day before that the charles austin verdict came down in florida where he was awarded 26.7 million dollars stemming from nearly being paralyzed from a rocker dropper given by marty Jannetty during a tv taping in tampa florida on december 11th 1990 that's from the history of wwe.com an incredible resource for just kind of seeing the timing of these things 
So you got that going on. Around this time, you have Jesse Ventura scoring a victory over the WWF, over royalties that were owed to him and them lying to him in a contract and all that. And then, of course, you know, Vince's steroid trial. So a lot of lot of things going on and a lot of different distractions. So the Men on a Mission had lost to the Quebecers. I believe it was the prior Monday. I had watched a lot of Raws from the time, so they're all in my mind. And the thing that took me about that match between those two teams was it was a surprisingly decent match. The Quebecers were a pretty good team from start to finish. They were not they were they were not terrible or anything, but for men on a mission to have a pretty decent match really surprised me because you look at the two guys, Mabel and Mo, and who would you say is the worker out of that group? Is it the 500-pound guy who would break Undertaker's face the next year, or is it Mo, who is not very good at all, who I don't think will be named on any WWE Greatest Wrestler Ever ballots? It's not so much their working style that would bother me about men on a mission. It was more how their whole rap was just kind of centered around whoop, there it is, which would just anger me because it made the whole phrase such a cliche because you already had tag team out there with that song. You had 95 South with whoop, there it is, which immediately got overshadowed by the tag team song, which is much better, by the way. Back in the archives of the Pro Wrestling Only feed, the show Tag Teams Back Again with Kelly Nelson and Marty Slees. Uh, you should probably have to go back about a year for those episodes with just reviewing tag team matches of mostly 80s WWF. So if you enjoy this show, you probably would enjoy that one. The reason why I think they use that as a cliche is because at least that's what people would know from rap music. At least that's what I think that it has to be. And it's harmless enough to say that. It's not like they can be quoting Tupac or Biggie lyrics. It's not like, you know, he could be going out there and saying, who shot you? And all that sort of stuff. Or keep your head up. Or any of, the, any of those other songs that were popular. And forget about the Chronic album. I mean, just, just forget about that. You, you kind of wish that maybe they could have been original in the manner of John Cena, which say what you want about Cena and the rap gimmick and I didn't enjoy it at the time for the times that I would peek in on the product around 2002-2003 but at least it was somewhat original at least he was coming up with his own stuff he wasn't just parroting lyrics that are on radio stations around the country Vince does give us an update that Chief J Strongbow was going to be fine so gee thanks we now just lost Parv again and that Tatanka is extremely distraught, which I don't think we needed an update on that because he's literally yelling at the sky, yelling no, and that, that's probably enough. And you do see a drop toe hold by Mo here, which they would do, and it was followed by a leg drop by Mabel and did not break the man's face, thank God. Vertical suplex by Mabel, and <laughs> Lawler... Lawler makes an extremely funny joke at the expense of the tribal elder. I was just thinking back about Chief J. Strongbow. He's about the same size as Mabel. When he got knocked down, I think he rocked himself to sleep trying to get back up. I'm telling you, Lawler was hilarious in 1994. At least to me, 
And I think it might have had something to do with the fact that he was off WWF TV dealing with his legal issues for three, four, five months at the end of 93 and the beginning of 94. So that was, you know, kind of a good thing because when he comes back, it's a little bit fresh and you don't get sick of him so fast. And his material seems a lot better in retrospect. This Stallings gets into the ring here and charges into what becomes a big boss man slam by Mabel. And what finishes here is one of the worst spinning heel kicks you will ever see, where Mabel gets up around his thighs, it looked like. It was hard to get a good look at where he got, but it was just very sorry looking. A 500-pound guy probably should not be doing that move. And that picks up the victory for them. Like I said, I just wish that their rap wasn't so cliched, but they, you know, might have been limited. They had Oscar on the outside to kind of do the heavy lifting there. Kind of like the cop in the village people, how he would do all the all the heavy lifting in that group. But in terms of Mabel, you look at him here and you tell somebody, you say, a year plus from now, he's going to be the king of the ring and the number one contender for the WWF title. And hardly anybody would believe it. But I will defend them putting Mabel in that spot. It's just that they made a couple of mistakes along the way. The idea of Mabel being the monster heel challenger in 1995 is not bad on its face. It's the fact that they should have tied it to something else. Something like, Mabel, look, if you lose 100 pounds or 150 pounds between now and next year, we will, we will put you in this spot. They should have tied it to that because he loses that much weight. He's still at 375 to 420, somewhere in that ballpark, and he's still plenty big. You had the big boss man in 1988 with Hogan, who's about 350. That was plenty big enough. He could have lost a ton of weight, would have helped him from a health perspective, and also in a moving around from in-ring perspective. And his clumsiness would have been less apparent if he was a little bit lighter. So that's kind of my defense of the... I'll get into it more when I get to a 1995 WWF show. By the way, that's one of my weird New Year's resolutions is to watch more 94 and 95 WWF. Just kind of a head-scratcher. And I think another one that I have is to watch more NWA TV from the mid-1980s. And I'm talking pre-1986, so 83 to 85. Kind of kind of a bizarre New Year's resolution to have. I was bruised and battered, I couldn't tell what I felt. I was unrecognizable to myself. I saw my reflection in a window and didn't know my own face, oh brother, gonna leave me wasting away on the streets of Philadelphia. Speaking of Philadelphia, Bruce, I'm pretty pumped up that I have ticket to the first NBA game that I have attended in 10 years coming up on January 18th. And I looked it up. It's apparently exactly 10 years since the last NBA game I went to. And back then it was the Celtics and the Philadelphia 76ers. And this time, it is the Celtics and the Philadelphia 76ers. And I, my theory behind asking for a ticket to that game is I figure I'm not going to be able to see Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons for face value for much longer. 
because uh, Joel Embiid is a force of nature. And just pray that he stays healthy until January 18th because he's like half the reason why I want to go to that game. Anyway, bruised and battered is something that would happen to this card coming up as they go to the live event center at Madison Square Garden and the Nassau Coliseum. Clearly, this is a New York feed that we are looking at here because they are promoting the two, two New York area shows. And they promote nine matches on the cards there, and several of them would not even take place. You had Lex Luger versus Mr. Perfect, who Perfect would be replaced by Crush for that tour. You had Razor versus Diesel, which did take place, but in the opposite direction of the way it was promoted, as Diesel would win the Intercontinental title and would defend it against the bad guy, generally going to a double countout in the matches in the New York area. Bam Bam Bigelow taking on Mabel. So Mabel as a single here in 1994. Bam Bam actually would prevail in that one. Doink versus Jeff Jarrett. Unfortunately, that happened. The lesser Doink, Jarrett prevailing in that one. The Steiners versus the Quebecers and Johnny Polo in a handicap match. It's funny to think of Johnny Polo as being part of the handicap match as he is the weak link considering the career that he was still to go on to have and that match did not take place and it wasn't even a handicap match as it was the head shrinkers the new tag champions and Afa beating the Quebecers and Johnny Polo Afa coming out of retirement 10 years after his well kind of official retirement there Alundra Blaze versus Luna Vachon was the program in the women's division and by the saying program there's really no other ones they just had no room for a second feud for the women which was part of the problem there quang beat sparky plug as both guys made their madison square garden debuts on the may 20th show and also howard finkel against harvey whippleman in a tuxedo match which doesn't really hold much appeal to me i don't understand why they made howard finkel wrestle or do any sort of physical activity why don't you just keep him as the ring announcer or the just even the ring announcer for special occasions at what whatever both guys working in the office him and whippleman i don't know maybe a little comedy element thrown in there since you don't have the midgets there and the bushwhackers are not on these shows so you need a little something of that element as i've learned from over time Anyway, and they show Adam Bomb on the cover of WWF magazine, but on the inside, there have been some sightings of The Undertaker, who had been missing since the Royal Rumble as he ascended into the heavens after he was locked in a casket by 74 of the most dastardly heels on the WWF roster. That is an approximation of that. You know, that's kind of like now, where hey, there's random Undertaker sightings. Like, yeah, I saw Undertaker at a Texas roadhouse in Lubbock, uh, Lubbock, Texas, and whatever, and you take his picture, and some guy who looks like Undertaker, but is not him. So, you know, 1994 is kind of like now in that sort of way. That Yes, the Undertaker, of course, they're slowly ramping up for the comeback, which would be against the fake Undertaker of the Million Dollar Corporation at... SummerSlam. So our next bout here is Bam Bam Bigelow with Luna Vachon 
taking on Mike Freeman. And I was very excited for a second, and I realized that the timing doesn't work out, that this is not my childhood friend, Mike Freeman, who lived on the same street as me back in the 80s because he would have been 15 years old this time. Uh, sending underage guys out to face somebody in a squash match in Massachusetts, that's that's not something you don't do unless you're ECW, of course. But that, that's, a, that's a whole other thing. One thing that I notice here is that the ring announcer Mike is extremely low, and the WWF had just given up, and they were talking over the ring announcements for the entire time. I miss the days, like last week with Joe McHugh, where they would pipe down and we would get to hear what they had to say, and you can't really hear any of the stuff going on. Bam Bam wearing the short sleeves here, so you can still see some of his tattoos on his arm, so he's not covered all the way down. Noticing these things about Bigelow, I, I always remember him as wearing the ultra-long sleeves all the time, but occasionally he would cut them down. You know, summer is coming in April of 94. Maybe he wants to cool off in some way, and then you had in, I believe, 1990 NWA during his brief stint there, he was wearing more of a tank top there, so showing off those elbows. Of course, that building was pretty hot in Washington, D.C. for Capital Combat, as I recall. Starts out with an avalanche and a back elbow, some usual big man offense from Bigelow. He's coming off the win alongside Luna against Doink and Dink at WrestleMania 10. And Luna, you can see her in the background. She's working the few front rows of the crowd, which, uh, to be honest, I think she was pretty good at. Scary-looking woman who sadly passed away a few years ago. There was a mention of Alundra Blaze being on the King's Court, which did take place on Raw. And as I was watching that segment with Lawler and Alundra Blaze, who obviously is formerly known as Medusa in the AWA and then later in WCW, just a pair of AWA champions just, you know, shooting the breeze in the ring. That's the way I saw it. And Medusa, the women's champion of the AWA in 1988, which might have been the strongest suit of that promotion around that time, anyway. And Bam Bam, he's, you know, like I said, usual big man offense here. And a lot of his agile stuff, went away after a period of time. He had the knee injury in the late 80s, which cut down on some of the cartwheeling and all that stuff. But here, he finishes it off with the moonsault. And it is impressive to see a 400-pound man do a moonsault. It was not perfect. He did not get the full rotation end over end, like kicking off a football to start a game. That's what you want to get with a moonsault there. I give it six Vaders out of ten on that. The difference is that Bam Bam connected on his moonsault, and you would hardly ever see Vader connect on his. Maybe a handful of times, but Vader, it was generally a spot that he would just end up missing. And credit to Mike Freeman for laying there and taking the moonsault from Bam Bam Bigelow. I really enjoy the Bam Bam and Luna pairing. She is my tick which only makes sense in that, you know, her name is Luna, and she is my tick, so Luna, tick. I, I guess it sort of makes sense. So it's kind of sad that Bam Bam was sold off to the million-dollar corporation later in 94 because 
when he's part of that group there, he's just really another guy. I think he's somebody who has a unique enough look that he can stand on his own and not just be villainous guy number three or number four from the million dollar corporation. So that is one way I think he gets lost in the shuffle going forward. As for Luna, I was interested to note because as I mentioned, Gangrel, David Heath was playing the Black Phantom earlier on the show. So they're in the same building here. They would eventually marry in October of 1994. So six months after this taping, six, seven months, they are married. Now, I don't know if they were already together at this point. I'm going to presume that that's the case. I don't I don't think Luna and David Heath's wedding was probably planned 14 months out like you would ordinarily see. But they did get married in 94. They did divorce, I believe, a dozen years later. So it did last probably longer than the median marriage length for professional wrestling. This is followed up by a Duke the Dumpster Drossy vignette, and <laughs> I, I, I might as well just play it. There's a lot of obstacles in life, but no obstacle is wide enough, high enough, or deep enough to keep me from climbing to the top of the World Wrestling Federation. So stay tuned and don't touch that dial, because Duke the Dumpster Drossy is coming soon. Well, there is one obstacle that Drossy could not overcome, and that is the concept of automated trash collection. That's that's something that requires less garbage men on duty. So at that point, he would need to find a job in wrestling in order to make ends meet. That would be a pretty good thing to bring somebody back as a Duke Drozzi type who is upset about automation and he's going to take it out on everybody. Maybe that's a bit too much of a highbrow gimmick there, but you know, it could be one of those uh, right-wing Vince ideas. You know, Be on the lookout for that. The thing, of course, about Duke the Dumpster that drives me insane that probably doesn't bother anybody else is when you look him up online, what you get is about 20 entries for Duke the Dumpster special ed teacher sells narcotics to an informant and is arrested and indicted back in September 2013. And then there's absolutely no follow-up to anything that goes on there. There's no were the charges dropped was he convicted did he plead out i can't find anything on that i i guess maybe i could go to like the court records but i don't have that kind of time to do that what when stuff like that happens immediately the skeptical guy of governmental interference here wonders is was this an entrapment case and he got off but all you see when you look up his name is oh he was arrested for dealing drugs oh he's a drug dealer so my advice just be careful about anything that you read you know sometimes there's more to meet the eye just because somebody is arrested for something does not necessarily mean especially when it is a oh he sold drugs to an informant i would be very very skeptical of something like that Good Lord, I did not expect this podcast to turn into a defense of the Mabel 95 push and a defense of Duke the Dumpster Drossi's uh, thing that happened to him a couple of years ago. But here we are. So the next segment, which I am not going to defend, is the Heartbreak Hotel, something created for Shawn Michaels to allow his injuries to heal in 1994. This little set would be you know, a neon sign that said Heartbreak Hotel with a bed. And Diesel would stand in the background and look menacing. And I talked about 
Victory Corner and how that was not a dynamic segment because Robert DeBoard was not made to be on television. Shawn Michaels' talk show segment is not good. In fact, I enjoy it less than Robert DeBoard's segment because at least he was unintentionally funny in some way. Shawn Michaels was not an entertaining talker in the least. It would take him a couple of more years before he, he on the mic... He was worth listening to and the end of 1997 in the formation of DX. And even then, he was kind of an annoying, you know, prick. But, you know, is the heel character. That's what he was supposed to be. So I consider Heartbreak Hotel one of the worst talk show segments that there ever was. And yes, that's my hot take. I enjoy Victory Corner more than Heartbreak Hotel. But right here, we have Owen Hart as the guest coming off his victory over Brett, the Hitman Hart, in the opener at WrestleMania 10, the true best match of WrestleMania 10, not the latter match, but rather the opener between the two Hart brothers. And of course, he's facing Brett on the house shows around this time, which goes into how well I think Owen was booked in 1994, starting with the heel turn, which was certainly something that was necessary. If you're not going to turn Brett, because it would have seemed stupid to do so then, you turn Owen and you have him be the antagonistic younger brother. And he's facing Brett on the house shows and he's losing, but eventually you can easily build him back up by having him win the King of the Ring, which he did in Baltimore in June of that year at the How much does this guy weigh pay-per-view? This segment is important for two different reasons. The first one is, if anybody asks you, what does Owen Hart have in common with Mike Tyson beyond both appearing on the WrestleMania 14 card, we got our answer here. I would just like to say, it's an honor to be here with you at the Heartbreak Hotel. And you know what, Heartbreak? You're right. I am skyrocketing straight to the top. Bravo to Owen Hart for calling him heartbreak in the same way that Mike Tyson would say, you are heartbreak. No, just just some good stuff. It's like calling Don Mattingly Donnie Baseball, but just calling him baseball or Ron Guidry, just calling him lightning, something like that. But there's another part of this promo that I most certainly appreciate, and it is the correct usage of a word that you would hear in so many wrestling interviews over the years, but Owen actually applies it correctly in this case where it makes sense. And when we meet, and believe me, we will meet again, Brett, I will beat you and I will become the World Wrestling Federation champion, brother. Hey, brother. Who you calling brother, you hook ass? After hearing Hulk Hogan use the word brother as a verbal tick in his promos so often over the years and the decades, it's refreshing to hear the word actually associated with a sibling, in this case, with Brett and Owen. So good job by the Rocket Owen Hart as he's rocketing up the card in the WWF at this time. Sean with a few hotel puns to close it out. He canceled Brett's security deposit, and it's checkout time. And they're like, whatever. I mean, Sean Michaels. What, th- this, this building here, the Lowell Memorial Auditorium, 
the more famous Shawn Michaels speech in there is, yes, this is where Shawn Michaels lost his smile on the Thursday Raw Thursday in 1997. And occasionally, in my house, which, as I said, is only a few minutes away from the Loma Moana term, I like to go into the woods in back of the house when I drop off some composting back there. And I like to look around in there to see if I can find Shawn Michaels' smile. And in the seven years since I moved here, I haven't found it yet, but I'm not giving up hope. Once there was this girl who wouldn't go and change with the girls in the change room. And when they finally made her they saw Earthmark's Test Dummies, a band from Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, who took America by storm a little bit in the early part of 1994, appealing to the misfits and oddities, at least in my high school anyway. And we have an oddity here, though this is four years before he would become Golga under a mask, as John Tenta, the earthquake, is taking on Eric Cody. And this being the time period where the WWF would have random people as ring announcers for one match on some of the shows. Here we have a guest ring announcer who I presume is from the local area and is wearing a very bad and loud Tatanka shirt, Joe Matarazzo. And in the research that I do for this show, I went down a rabbit hole for a good 20 minutes trying to track down Joe Matarazzo and... I thought I knew who it might be, but I can't really go any further than that. And Sometimes you don't want to dig too much of a hole here because there are some things you might not want to find out, some tragedy in a person's life, and that's all I'll say about that. So the earthquake, fellow Canadian to the crash test dummies, seeing him in 1994 as a singles babyface is... Rather strange, but at the same time, it kind of makes sense, him flashing a smile. But it's it's kind of neat to see him in a different sort of context. I also believe that Earthquake holds the record now for the most WrestleMania matches without a loss. He is 4-0 and at WrestleMania, so take that, Undertaker. And John Tenta passed away several times several years ago so that is a record that will stand for a while and I don't know if anybody will go any better than 4-0 maybe there's somebody active that I am not thinking of who is 5-0 but I tend to doubt it it's just really strange to see a guy like him as a singles babyface and he's not there for very long as I mentioned earlier he'd be replaced by Typhoon as he they're setting up a light feud with Yokozuna over sumo skills, which makes sense because John Tenta was an actual sumo in Japan. Here, Quake is running the ropes, and Cody drops down, and Earthquake just sort of stops and drops an elbow on him. I always enjoy that move when one guy drops down and the other guy just stops. I think I saw that last week with Tito Santana as well. A belly-to-belly suplex by Earthquake, where he just snaps him around pretty quickly. And that's a move that I did not see very much from him. Usually you would see the power slam from Earthquake, which he does 
deliver here, does the walk over the chest move where he puts one foot on him and then steps over. You'd see Andre the Giant do that move occasionally as well. And very quickly, the earthquake splash finishes off Mr. Eric Cody here. And I'm just, as I'm watching this match, I'm thinking, Earthquake, he's going to go to WCW in about a year and show up in a variety of gimmicks, Shark and Avalanche and all that. Going to be a Hulk Hogan opponent again, which made sense for him because there's probably more money in WCW for him at that point because the WWF just seemed incredibly disorganized with, as I mentioned, all the distractions going on. So let's think of something to do with John Tenta in 1994. The obvious thing to me is to perhaps have him align with Bret Hart in some way as some sort of Canadian counterbalance to Jim Neidhart joining Owen Hart, and then eventually you would have Earthquake turn heel and face Bret down the line. How this interferes with the Bob Backlund thing, I don't know, but I would have liked to have seen a Bret Hart versus Earthquake match because Bret is the guy who got the best out of Yokozuna, who was even more immobile than Earthquake. I just think that they could have had really good matches with John Tenta being a pretty mobile guy for somebody of that size, somebody who could actually throw drop kicks and the like. And those two guys did face one time in 1991, but it was not in a singles match. It was a tag match at Madison Square Garden shortly before WrestleMania 7. It was Earthquake and Dino Bravo versus the Hart Foundation, and Brett was in peril for much of the match, selling both Bravo and Earthquake's offense. I do think that that would have been a worthwhile singles feud for Earthquake had they decided to keep him around. But then again, like I said, There was more money in it for Tenta to make the jump, so I can't blame him in the least for doing that. Vince lets us know that on next week's Superstars, we'll see IC champion Razor Ramon taking on Adam Bomb. But right now, we have Tony Roy taking on Crush, who is just Crush. He's not Kona Crush. He's not Demolition Crush. He's Japanese Sympathizer Crush, for whatever reason. But we get a distraction early on here, as Nikolai Volkov is in the front row here, wearing his ugly burgundy suit with a mustard shirt that he may or may not have loaned to Dwight Schrute after this. And this is the Volkov has fallen on hard times. This is the very beginning of this. But yet he is somehow still in the front row at a WWF TV taping. So my theory on that, somebody brought that up years ago. Like, how if he's on such hard times, how is Volkov ending up in the front row with these shows? And my thought is that somebody in the office took pity upon him and said, I'm going to give you a front row seat here. And they carved out a spot for him. And uh, just out of respect for the work that he had done in the 70s and 80s for the WWF. So that's really my explanation for how Volkov ended up in that spot. You see more from him in 1994. Some of it truly hilarious, such as him wearing the scent sign on the back of his suit 
in contrast to the million dollar man wearing the dollar sign on the back of his. Crush not off to a good start against Tony Roy here. He misses a charge, not an SD Jones Memorial charge, just a regular charge. And Roy scores with a couple of drop kicks, but is cut off a big super kick by the big man Crush. Vince also lets us know that the Indians backstage, or the Native Americans Tatanka and fake Native American Jay Strongbow, they are outraged about all this. So I like how Vince is letting us know the, the progression of emotion of these two guys after they've disappeared from the show. They're going through the stages of grief, it seems, and Mr. McMahon wants to let us know all about it. Press slam by Crush. He's a powerful guy, no doubt about it, but with Brian Adams crushed it really isn't just much there there's there, there's something lacking and maybe I can't put my finger on it but there was just something keeping him from being a top guy somewhere along the line somebody had said that crush was on that quote-unquote list of guys considered for the WWF title in late 1992 that strikes me as complete nonsense because he was just not at that level, it would have been a monstrous mistake to put any title on him. And he finishes off with the heart punch here and finishes Roy off by pinning him with one finger, Ludwig Borga style. Borga is long gone at this point. But Crush, he's he's just really a guy here, just sort of a aimless mid-card heel with some size backing up Yokozuna and Mr. Fuji's fa- faction there. And eventually, he sticks around through 94, subs in for Mr. Perfect against Lex Luger, which doesn't do much for Luger, having Crush there. And eventually, is number 30 in the 1995 Royal Rumble, and later that year, goes to jail on steroid and gun charges, which leads into what is my favorite Crush character, the reformed inmate Crush, who is in the Nation of Domination, kind of in that triad of him and Savio Vega, eventually down the road, and Farouk. Not a lot of great crush moments, in my opinion, but at least that's my favorite version of him. Fans, keep watching for more information in the upcoming weeks about how you can become a guest ring announcer during the WrestleMania Revenge Tour in New York, courtesy of PC Richard and Son. If you've ever watched a New York Yankees home game and you don't know what that stupid whistle is after every Yankee pitcher records a strikeout, it is the little tag at the end of PC Richard and Son commercials that is mostly in the New York metropolitan area. It's just sort of an electronics store. And before I go on a rant about baseball, I'm just going to cut it off right there. Promotional consideration is presented by Slim Jim. And it's the only promotional consideration. I was kind of disappointed there. And they would lose that by the end of 94 when Savage would take off in the middle of the night and head down to WCW. So they close this show with, because we haven't had enough IRS here, one final thought from Mr. Mike Rotundo. Do you think I care about the condition of Tatanka? Do you think anybody cares? I don't think so. All the idiot had to do was pay the gift tax on that stinking headdress. But no, he didn't do it. 
You're an idiot, Tatanka, and you found out, along with Jay Strongbow, just how the IRS treats tax evaders. Obviously, those two Indians should have paid their taxes. Back to you, Vic. When I was watching this, I cracked up when Johnny Polo called Vince Vic there at the end, and Vince immediately corrects him and probably fired him on the spot. Who the hell hired Johnny Polo, damn it? Yeah, Johnny Polo would kind of follow the Quebecers out the door for a completely different reason, that being that he wanted to wrestle and Vince wanted to move him in sort of a production role. And, of course, he would eventually turn up in ECW as Raven. So I think Scott Levy won that argument that, yeah, there was a little something in him as a wrestler. And that is how they wrap up WWF superstars for... April 16th, 1994. But we're not done here as we have a quick edition of YouTube Comment Theater. And this video has been up for about a year on the YouTubes, so there are quite a few on here. Start with Too Sweet. Wow, Tatanka's gross overreaction. Ha. Huh. Yeah, that did not help him, as I mentioned here. And another comment by the same person. Crush slash Brian Adams was so badass at this point. Much more lean than he had been previously, with much more polished looking gear. Loved him from 92 to 95. Hey, you, you know, you're entitled to your opinion there. It's just that I prefer a different sort of crush. Yeah. Deep Ghoul says, when recapping this episode on Wrestling Challenge's special report, Lord Alfred Hayes was right to say that Tatanka deserved to have his headdress torn up by IRS. Yeah, that kind of goes into my resolution of watching more 94 and 95 WWF because I want to see this Lord Alfred Hayes kind of slow heel turn towards the end of his run before he departs in 1995. Uh, that would be actually kind of interesting to see, and I kind of wish that they had used him more in that sort of role before that because that, that would have been a lot of fun to see. JBats41 says... IRS got more heat in that five minutes than Bray, Wyatt, and Bo Dallas have in their entire career. And yeah, I don't want to go too far down that road there, but suffice to say, Bray Wyatt's last three years, and you can't blame it, I don't think, entirely on booking, has been, just been a complete disappointment. The, the character was there, but it's just it just has not worked. And I think part of it is that they should have turned him babyface in like 2015 and things would have worked out, I think, a lot better. Not that they know how to book baby faces much better than that. Super Liger says, Italian tribal elder chief Jay Strongbow, at least Wahoo McDaniel, was a real native. And I found it interesting that they name-dropped Wahoo in alongside Strongbow when they were talking about the tribal elders there, because Wahoo was not a guy who was part of the New York Territory. I think you kind of had to acknowledge him because he was clearly superior to Strongbow in every way and was actually an authentic Native American. And Richard Stevens says, What a load of crap. The jobbers had no chance of winning. You're like, have you ever watched wrestling television on a weekly basis? That's how it's supposed to work. You know, if you put on competitive matches week after week, whatever. These matches serve a purpose. It is to get over the moves and abilities of the superstars that you're trying to push, okay? And I miss these kind of matches. I'm sorry. Maybe it's just me, but I know that deep in any fan's heart, they probably do too. 
And that'll do it for YouTube Comment Theater. With the NFL playoffs approaching this weekend, our wild card weekend, figured there is no better time than now than to bring back Vinny Vegas Corner. For the benefit of those of you in the listening audience who went against my picks this year when I did make them, I went 5-9-1, so if you went against me every time, you would have gone 9-5-1, which is more than enough of a spread to win yourself some money. So let's go right into it. The four games this weekend on Wild Card Weekend in the NFL will start out with the Tennessee Titans at the Kansas City Chiefs, a game which on paper to me looks like a complete mismatch. See, I have a friend in Kansas City who's a Chiefs fan. I like to consider her my ambassador to Kansas City Chiefs fandom. It's one of the great things about social media in now being a sports fan in the era of social media is you can cultivate ambassadors to various teams that you don't necessarily get to be plugged in on on a weekly basis. Like, She's my ambassador to the Kansas City Chiefs. Listener Steve Bennett is my ambassador to the New Orleans Saints. And so on and so forth. I, By the way, I do need ambassadors for the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Ottawa Senators. Please send your applications in in a timely fashion. So the Chiefs are a 8.5 point favorite here. Now I had the Tennessee Titans in my wins pool this year. Which I managed to prevail in by the slimmest of margins with a total of 54 wins spread across six teams, winning by one. Second place was 53 wins, and then two guys tied for third with 52 wins. So the Titans are a team that I took some interest in, and I really wish I didn't, because listening to their games on the radio is awful, because they have one of those announcers who, when the kicker makes an extra point, he yells, It's good! It's like, settle down, buddy. It's an extra point. And they are just a brutal team to watch. They don't do anything particularly well in any facet of the game. So I don't... It's it's really kind of amazing that they ended up making the playoffs. Part of it is because they played in a division with the Colts and the Texans, who both went 4-12. and 12. So I like Kansas City here at minus 8.5 because I think that that can kind of write off the mid-season lull that they had. They had a lot of stupid things go wrong for them, like the guy against the Jets throwing the flag into the stands, which is actually kind of funny when you think about it, but it was a 15-yard penalty there and kept a drive going and all that sort of stuff. So Kansas City minus 8.5 against Tennessee. The night game on Saturday is the Atlanta Falcons at the LA Rams. And I was kind of hoping that things were going to get switched around a little bit in the NFC. I was hoping that Atlanta was going to play New Orleans because that's a much more heated rivalry than New Orleans versus Carolina. But this is what we get. We get the upstart Rams hosting the Falcons. And I see that the Rams are a six and a half point favorite. And that's the fact that the Rams have kind of run it up on some teams this year. They kind of rested guys in last week's game against San Francisco, which also helped me win the wins pool because Jimmy G is such a handsome man and such a, such a great quarterback. 7-0 to start his NFL career as a starter. So this is kind of a tough line here because Atlanta is a team that's been very difficult to figure out. I have picked 
them on Vinny Vegas Corner many times. And they have burned me time and time again. But yet, I'm going to continue to go back to the well as they're getting six and a half points. And here's why. I figure there's probably about an 85-90% chance that one of these things is going to happen. Either they're going to win the game against the young Rams team, which I, I tend to think they're probably not going to win the game. I also think that there's a chance that they're going to keep it close and perhaps lose it in heartbreaking fashion at the end. Or you could have a two-touchdown game or a ten-point game late and Matt Ryan drives them for a garbage-time touchdown for the backdoor cover. So... Atlanta plus six and a half there. Sunday afternoon, we have maybe the most unlikely playoff matchup. The Buffalo Bills at the Jacksonville Jaguars. And you say that those two teams in the playoffs just seems really out of place. I, I'm very happy for all the fans of the Bills, no matter the things that they yelled at me in 2013 when I was there waiting to get into the stadium in my Brady jersey. I'll, I'll let that go because there's a lot of frustration up there over the years. Buffalo is an eight and a half underdog, and I'm, I'm I'm looking at this, I'm like, do you really want to pick Blake Bortles giving eight and a half points here? Well, the pro on that is that they are five and oh in their last five home games in that stadium. On the other hand, Buffalo won their last four games of the season that were not against the New England Patriots. Something of a nemesis for them, but you can't blame them too much because one of the four teams in the NFL that won 13 games on the season. So there is that. You got the LaShawn McCoy injury, which is a game-time decision. It really kind of makes me nervous about this one, but I figure, hey, what the hell? I'm going to go Buffalo plus 8.5 because I cannot give 8.5 points with Blake. Bortles. If Buffalo gets a defensive touchdown early in the game, then you're counting on Blake Bortles to win the rest of the game by 16, 17 points. So I'll take the points there. And finally, we have Carolina at New Orleans in a matchup of teams that lost games in week 17 that they needed to win. Carolina had more of an excuse because they're playing a very desperate Atlanta team that needed to get into the playoffs in the first place. New Orleans left me scratching my head as they often have in previous years. Not so much this year, but with that loss at Tampa, giving up that long touchdown pass at the end, kind of overshadowed a bit by the Andy Dalton touchdown pass in Baltimore to win that game. But the fact that the Saints lost that game is just really, really strange. And because of that, that's how we ended up getting those NFC matchups switched over. And one policy that I have here is when you have these NFC South matchups and the line is more than four points, we're excluding Tampa Bay from this equation here. Carolina's getting six and a half here, so I'm going to take the points because I think this is going to be a classic, close, perhaps a game-winning field goal will be in play here. So Carolina plus six and a half there on wildcard weekend. So Kansas City minus eight and a half, Atlanta plus six and a half, Buffalo plus eight and a half, Carolina plus six and a half. The picks for NFL Wild Card Weekend. Now I have gone back to mapping out my shows in advance. I was kind of flying by the seat of my pants there for a few weeks, but next week, because it's freezing cold here in New England right now, I decided I'll pick a show from the summertime, the red hot summer of 1993. That was WCW. At WCW Saturday night from June 26, 1993. I figure I could use a little bit of Tony Schiavone and Jesse Ventura in my life to warm my heart. After that, got a WWF show from 
the mid to late 80s. Going to have a little Memphis dropped in in a couple of weeks, and a WWF Action Zone will return for the first time in about 40 episodes. So do stay tuned for that. And do check in next Thursday for another exciting episode of Greetings from Allentown. I have to admit, Tatanka looked good wearing that headdress, but he looked a lot better eating it, didn't he? <laughs>